Hello and welcome to Warpod, the official podcast of the Remote Warfare Programme. In our monthly Westminster Roundup podcast, we give you a quick roundup analysis of the two top stories from Westminster, chosen by Liam, that's him, and Megan, that's her. So Liam, what is your story of the month? Well, hi Megan, I am actually recording this podcast uh, from a cupboard. <laughs> this That's is very this exciting. Is the, <laughs> the situation that we uh, we find ourselves in. I suppose it's it's uh, the least um, problematic. Many other people suffering in in more challenging ways. I'm just recording a podcast from a cupboard. Yeah. But anyway. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, look, we're still doing the Westminster Roundup podcast though, and and it has been an an interesting month. But I think lots of things have been happening uh, with regards to politics through the lens of the the current pandemic and I think one of the things that we've talked a lot about on this podcast over the last couple of uh, months is the integrated security defense and foreign policy review which is this you remembered the whole name which is very impressive it, it's only because I've got it in front of me on a laptop <laughs> I, can, <laughs> I can read it I can make sure I get it I get it right although there's a there's a there's a few um uh, some people asking whether de- development is going to be included as part of this review uh, and uh, some somewhere some places I've seen that development has been included in the full title uh, and other places uh, I've not seen it. and I think the the list of stakeholders uh, does not include DFID which is yeah. an interesting development anyway I wanted to talk about the fact that we had a timeline it was meant to be uh, completed, the review, by uh, the spending review, which was anticipated for July 2020. But obviously, with everything going on, um, uh, there's there's speculation uh, that the review will be de- delayed, not not least because the, the spending review um, is actually most likely going to, to, to be delayed. Yeah. Um, beyond beyond July, which has a knock on effect on 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 the review. Because it did seem like uh, there was a plan to kind of link what was coming out of the review with this this spending review, given that obviously money is a very important part of of getting uh, this right. Although, of course, as we've argued in the past, it's not everything. Yeah. Uh, we need to understand what exactly our strategic priorities are before we ask the question about, well, how much is that going to be going to cost and what are we going to going to spend things on? So we've definitely seen that there there may be uh, a delay which is an interesting point because something that we've been uh, arguing and others have, have similarly argued is that given the, the positive side of things that the government was going to commit to it at least rhetorically they were saying they were going to commit to uh, wide-ranging uh, civil society engagement Absolutely. and then consultation this was a, a response to a parliamentary question that came out I think it was last month uh, or maybe even ju- no no it was in February. Um, the answer was in in March from Lord, Lord Ahmed, the FCA Diffid uh, minister, saying that there there was going to be this broad ranging consultation, which is really positive. But um, I know we we were sort of discussing this before recording the podcast, and there is a, a challenge in achieving that wide consultation and getting that integrated into the review in such a short space of time. Uh, I think you had some of the roundtables that we've been holding at ORG, for example. There's yeah. a good example. Was it the Can- Canadian uh, so case, wasn't it? In the 2015 review, yeah, I think they had quite a big focus on having that external engagement as well, 
but they found that because they were doing it at the same time as writing the internal review, there was this mismatch where you didn't actually have a chance to include the external feedback. Um, so like you say, you've been arguing for a while that there should be more focus on really having a good timeline for ensuring that you not only have engagement with civil society and external experts, but also that it's meaningful and actually has a chance to have an impact. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, no, and I think it's it. We should take the lesson from from Canada on mm. that point to to see how that how, and and I think to how serious the government is this uh, external consultation because if it takes seriously this point about the timelines and the impact that that can have on being able to embed and integrate incorporate some of this this stuff from external experts into the review, then surely they should think about uh, maybe extending the uh the timeline of the review but of course if it's delayed anyway perhaps there will be a bit more time notwithstanding yeah. the fact that i think there is a significant amount of evidence suggesting that uh lots of people have sort of been um their roles have been slightly changed uh, absolutely that and i guess you can see that even in our um, interaction with people in the government like trying to talk to people within fco or MOT, they're all yeah. very busy focusing on COVID, and so having that engagement is quite difficult so I think exactly. it is it is quite it'd be quite meaningful to have a longer um, timeline to be able to actually ha do some work on this definitely. Yeah. I think it's notable as well that the Canadian review was actually meant to have 24 months and was cut down to 12. And even then they had a very hard time um, having enough engagement with civil society. And so trying to do this in six months, which is the initial timeline we had, has been it's been very tight. Yeah. And but yeah. everybody's been saying that it's, it's far too short. Yeah. Um, it would be good, especially for a, a review that's supposed to be the most comprehensive review since the Cold War. Yeah, yeah. it'd be great to have more time. <laughs> and I mean, and it's interesting as well because look, if you look at the modernising defence program, the National Security Capabilities Review, which sort of took place between 2017 and well, I think it was the end of 20, 2018, when you had the publication of the the, the modernising defence program, the defence element of that review, uh, that that took a significant amount of time and that was just meant to be a sort of so-called mini strategic review of threats exactly. um, so and I mean the one argument that that government and other um, experts have said as well a lot of this thinking has already been done because of these reviews and because of the time taken so that we can then take that analysis and then inject that into to the current review but I think still given that there is so much more of a focus we've already been discussing on that external engagement um, that they still probably will have to do a lot of groundwork in making sure that that is truly incorporated into uh, the review. And the last thing I want to say is that obviously all the committees now, despite uh, um, Parliament not being in session at the moment, um, have launched their inquiries into the integrated review. So mm -hmm. uh, it's it's quite busy and I think there's going to be a lot of interest. Um, we've seen a lot of articles from different MPs, Tom Tugnat, Alyssa Kearns, who's a new MP and a member of uh, the Foreign Affairs Committee now and Emily Thornbury as well. I think Emily Thornbury and Tom Tugnat both doing, uh, I'm not sure if it's a joint article, but a, a piece. No, about two separate ones. Yeah, two separate ones, but being launched yeah. on politics home uh, about why why this is such an important review. Um, but anyway, yeah, that's that's kind of my story. I think uh, a wait, a wait and see. I think we keep saying wait and see about this, this integrated review, but it very yeah, much does feel like, like that every time. time you speak. Absolutely. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, Megan, so, what, is, what is your story? So my story is that we've seen an increased engagement around the 250 troops who are going to be deployed to the UN MINISMA um, operation in Mali this year, which is something we've been asking for for a long time. So we've seen um, that the UK has kind of committed to committing to deploying these 250 troops, but there's been very little engagement within Parliament to ask 
what are they supposed to be doing and what are, yeah. what are the success terms for that operation. Um, but now we are starting to see quite a lot more engagement from MPs. We've seen a lot of questions being asked. The answers are very varied. So some of them have been um, a little bit more detailed. Terribly vague. <laughs> very, very vague. Especially, I was just saying before, it's quite frustrating reading the replies from the Minister for Armed Forces, James Heapy, who has usually a one-line reply saying, oh, we are going along with the UN, UN goals, which isn't very clarifying. Yeah. Um, but it has been really good to have more engagement because we've been seeing for a long time that both within the UK, but also across Europe and France, for example, that there's been very little engagement with these deployments. Um, and it's, it plays back to this wider point we've been emphasizing for a long time where remote warfare and partner operations are seen as a very low risk form of engagement. And so there's no challenge when it actually happens. Yeah. Um, and it's been something we've been exploring for a while, also comparing it to the Danish approach, where MPs often challenge a lot more and ask the government more questions. Um, and so the government is forced to kind of justify why they are engaging. And it's been quite an interesting contrast to see that kind of different level of engagement. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, I mean, I think what's quite interesting about this as well is that, and this reflects some of the conversations that, that we've had with troops, is they're not quite clear on what the mission objective is and when I say that I mean are they there truly to to support the the UN mission mm -hmm. through this long-range reconnaissance unit that they're forming or is it actually uh, a slightly different purpose which is to bolster their support to the French and of course you've got the the politics of the fact that the US has been talking a lot about pulling back from uh, many of its um, deployments across the continent uh, and whether actually the French need greater support. And of course, with everything going on with the UK trying to very much link to the previous uh, story uh, mm -hmm. with the UK trying to sort of firm up its future um, mission, global mission, uh, whether this is also part of the UK uh, trying to be seen as still a lead security uh, partner with its European allies and particularly with, with the French. I mean, we've obviously seen a lot of developments and uh, joint exercises with the French over meant the last sort of six, six years, five years. Um, but I think it's sort of been um, uh, in, increased given the, the current yeah. situation with the negotiations out of, uh, with the, the UK and the European Union. But yeah, I mean, I, I think the fact that and I'm, I'm trying to understand also how it because you're right when you say there's been lots of parliamentary questions but it seemed like there was media interest at a particular point earlier on in, in this year and then suddenly yeah. MPs have, have sort of realised that this is going on have then sort of decided well hang on a minute well I think we need to ask more questions about it. Um, I think yeah. you're right definitely and I think it's interesting to see as well that there are some MPs who are challenging, challenging that influence piece where they're saying you know it's, it's possible to build influence while building capacity which is what we need to do but it needs to be clear on the ground what people are trying to work yeah. towards. Like we've yeah. seen that people we interview in these places, in Sahel, for example, don't know what they're supposed to be working towards, which makes it very difficult to report on what yeah. you're doing in your progress. And so having that clarity about whether you're building influence or building capacity yeah. or doing both, but then to what extent, exactly. is really important to have on the ground as well. And I mean, there was a really good example of this. Our colleague Abigail Watson was, was speaking at an event recently about the integrated review and was talking about the fact that conversations that she'd been having uh, with um, uh, troops deploying to, to, the, to the mission sort of suggested that, again, back to my, my point earlier, that they weren't quite sure about what it really was that they were doing mm. in terms of influencing. Was it about the French? Was it about the UN? And there was sort of this, the rupture of laughter 
from uh, members of the the audience who happened to be in, in the British Army and were going to be deploying on the mission and they were asking exactly the same questions well yeah. w- w- you know we are so unclear about what uh, we're we're meant to be doing and some people might argue well they don't need to know what they're doing because it's you know they're, they're an instrument of political power therefore they just do what they're told but I think actually that that doesn't reflect some of the research that we've done that, yeah. that actually well, these people these soldiers who are in a way are now being asked to be uh, to be deployed as a, a foreign policy instrument in terms of building that influence and that capacity. Uh, it's important that they do understand what they are there to do, because to, to be effective, they surely need to uh, know what they should be prioritising. Absolutely. I think even when, when our two colleagues went to Mali and Kenya to do research there, they found people quite senior in the military who were unaware of whether they're supposed to be building influence or building capacity. Yeah which is quite problematic um, to not have that yeah. clarity when you're on the yeah. ground. And, and I think also the, the fact that the Foreign Office, for example, in its so-called Africa strategy, which is about a list of 10 bullet points, one of the points there is that, you know, it's it's there to address the underlying causes of conflict. Well, OK, that's that's the political message from the Foreign Office. But what's what's the MAD doing in terms of its its influence building? Is its mission uh, being set up in a way that is fulfilling that objective of addressing those underlying causes of conflict because we know that in many of these areas that the state capacity there is quite weak and that if you're not doing this capacity building in a responsible way that then of course you potentially are exacerbating conflict mm-hmm. rather than addressing and of course look let, let's stop, let's be honest this this mission with the UN is a very limited mission and there probably will be elements of that if it is there to as the government is sort of trying to reassure everybody that it's there to support the UN mission, that it's going to be helping the UN mission in terms of addressing protection of civilians issues and the fulfilling that mandate of the UN yeah. mission, then that is that is a positive sign. But also, you've got to be honest about, well, how does that, and it speaks to our research, how does that then fit in with the broader uh, efforts being done in somewhere like Mali? Because with 250 troops, I mean, you're going to be able to have a very, a very limited sort of tactical um outcome so how are you really addressing protection civilians issues because if yeah it's it's a broader issue than just them um being deployed uh when you need the whole uh international effort to to marry up to be able to address you know protection civilians issues for example i think it goes beyond the poc issue even though that is very very important but even how are you going to be functional in any kind of aspect of your deployment if you don't fit into what's on the ground already um, and we have seen statements from from the FCO, for example, from Harriet Baldwin, I believe it was, who said that it's more important than ever because there's so many actors on the ground that the UK stands out. Whereas we're saying it's also very, very important that they fit in mm. and that the UK brings valuable um, additions to what already exists on the ground instead of trying to just stand out as this exceptional um, yeah. force who can't do much with 250 troops. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's, I think that's probably it for this month. Yeah, it is. Uh, I think there's some really interesting things and uh, going on and some developments, despite most of the media attention being on COVID-19. I, th- I think that's always a challenge with this, this this sort of thing as well, that you know, we are still preparing to deploy in somewhere like Mali, so we need to make sure that there is sufficient accountability transparency Absolutely. over what it is exactly the UK is hoping to achieve with that deployment. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. Well, anyway, from my cupboard and not quite from my bedroom yeah Yeah. Uh, (laughs) this has been the Westminster Roundup podcast thank you very much thank you so much